Well, we're going to conclude in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. And this is a count of a miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, one of the well-known miracles in the Scripture that shows Christ's power, His compassion, His love, His care, His ability to provide for His people. So let's go ahead and read that this evening. Mark 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd." And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat. And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. One of the little Puritan paperbacks by John Owen titled Searching Our Heart in Difficult Times, John Owen writes the following, Growing in love towards the person of Christ is a great evidence to me of a sincere faith in Christ. When a soul has received Christ, it cannot but study Christ. It is not a great argument against the sincerity of a man's faith and grace if he spends more time considering the offices and graces of Christ and the benefits that we obtain from him, but it is an argument against his growth in grace. A thriving faith and an increase in grace will show themselves in an increasing consideration of the person of Christ." This involves the soul studying his person, the glory of God in him, his natures, the union of them in one person, his love, condescension, and grace. It involves the heart being drawn out to love him and to cry, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This passage before us tonight is a remarkable passage that brings us right into fellowship with the person of Jesus Christ. We see his care. We are told of his compassion. We see him powerfully provide for multitudes. As our hearts were filled with horror, at Herod's banquet of death, which was the outcome of gross self-gratification. Tonight, as we look at this account of the feeding of the 5,000, may our hearts swell in love and awe at this feast of grace, 
which is the overflow of divine care, compassion, and creative power of the God-man Christ. This is one of, this is the only miracle that all four Gospels record. It's one of the critical points in Christ's ministry as he provides and in so doing points back to the curse and the consequences of the curse as we'll see and points forward to the breaking of his body on the tree as he offers himself as the bread of life. The theme that we'll work with this evening from these verses is simple, Christ the gracious host satisfies. Christ the gracious host satisfies. Herod was a self-gratifying host. At the end of his feast was death and strife. Christ is a gracious host, and he satisfies. And let me point out as we work through the text tonight and what I hope will be just a a simple manner, um, what will be said tonight is only a fraction of what could be said. We could spend a number of services in this text But this is a wonderful text to use also when you want to tell those who are in darkness outside of Christ about Christ. What could be better than to offer those who are starving, to offer those who are perishing in their sin, Christ, who is the gracious host who satisfies. Christ, the gracious host, satisfies. There are three points this evening. Christ cares for the tired. Christ directs the lost. And Christ provides for the needy. Christ cares for the tired. Christ directs the lost. And Christ provides for the needy. In verse 31, as the disciples return to Jesus... Jesus says to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Christ cares for the tired. Of course, this is talking here about Christ's disciples. They've returned from their mission of proclaiming Christ, of healing the sick, and of casting out demons. Very likely, they've found out of John's execution, and they are coming back and reporting now to Christ, and they're tired. And yet, their popularity has grown that the Bible says they don't even have time to eat. And when passages like this tell us details like that, it can be easy to think, oh, that's just hyperbole. Uh, It's just an overstatement. No, that's really how it was. The press of the people was so great that Jesus and his disciples did not even have time to eat. Later on, we're, we're told that following Christ means denying ourselves and taking up our cross. When Peter And his brother followed Christ. They left everything. And those calls and the examples of those who follow Christ, at at first glance, it it sounds grueling and exhausting. And to a point, it it certainly is. But Christ also knows your situation. Christ understands that you are weak and that you become exhausted. He himself In John chapter 4 and verse 6, we're told he was wearied after the long walk and he sat down by a well to drink. And of course, we know the outcome of that story as he had the conversation with the Samaritan woman. Jesus knows your situation. He, As the disciples come back to him after they've gone out under his authority in his strength, 
Uh, Such popularity has been generated. He knows that they need to come away. And so he makes the invitation, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He, He understands the pressures that they were under and the fact that they needed rest. They've returned from a physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausting mission, and now they can't even eat and recover their strength. Christ cares for the tired, even as his disciples follow him, leaving all, exerting for the sake of Christ, Christ the shepherd, Christ the one who cares for us. He knows our situation, and so he extends the invitation, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Come away. You know, this is not the only place in Scripture where there's a precedent for resting from labor when serving the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, Elijah goes to Mount Carmel and he confronts the prophets of Baal. If you remember, they're leaping around their altar, crying out for fire to come down and nothing happens. And Elijah has water poured over the altar at the evening sacrifice and very simply asks the Lord to show that he is God and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice and the altar and the water that was around the altar He then has the 450 prophets of Baal slain, and the Lord strengthens him to run on foot from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, which is in the neighborhood of 15 to 25 miles. And so he actually outruns Ahab, who's in a chariot, while he's on foot 15 to 25 miles across the wilderness to Jezreel. I've never run 15 to 25 miles, much less faster than a chariot. That would be exhausting. He confronts Ahab, and after that confrontation, Jezebel, Ahab's wife, is pretty upset with Elijah and threatens to take his life. And so he takes off again, and the Scripture says that he runs from Jezreel to Beersheba. Now, Jezreel's in the northern part of Israel. Beersheba's all the way down in the south in the Negev. It's about 100 miles on foot. He leaves his servant there, and he goes another day into the wilderness. And then he falls down by a tree. I would think so. And he wants to die. He's been preaching and doing the work of the Lord, and yet there's still the opposition, and he's physically, spiritually, and emotionally exhausted. And what happens while he's by that broom tree? Well, he falls asleep. And then an angel of the Lord comes to him and feeds him. And then he falls asleep again. And an angel of the Lord comes and feeds him. The Lord gave him a time of rest and renewal for the work that was ahead. And the Bible says for 40 days, as he prepared for the next phase of ministry, he went on the strength of that food. Jesus knows your situation. He extends the invitation. You know, following Christ Following Christ in the world is following Christ in the midst of a world system that's energized by the devil. And it's exhausting, or at least it should be. We're told that we are in a spiritual warfare and to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And yet our foe, the devil, is tireless in his schemes. Our foe, the devil, is tireless as a roaring lion seeking 
whom he may devour, attempting to keep those who belong to Christ and who serve Christ from being effective for Christ. The disciples had experienced this to a degree. They'd been preaching the gospel to people who were outside of the kingdom of God, confronting people with their sin, calling them to repentance. They'd been dealing with the effects of sin as they healed those who were sick, and they were dealing directly with the forces opposing the advance of the kingdom of God as they cast out demons. And they knew that the forerunner of Christ had been executed. It's exhausting to follow Christ. We, we are in a, in a world that is no friend of Christ and no friend of the followers of Christ. This is why Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we don't lose heart. And why does he say that? Well, because he says, though the outer self is wasting away, that's the reality. Even in this fallen world, our flesh, the devil, the world, it's all, it's all against us spiritually and physically. Dying, we are dying as the result of sin. Our outer self is wasting away, yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. Christ, even in his call to discipleship and his invitation, he tells us that following him is a mix of rest and labor. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Christ calls us to himself, he calls us out of the striving that is in the world and, and even the, the striving that is unto death as we, as we strive to find some kind of salvation in ourselves or in some kind of false religion. And so we immediately find rest for our souls in Christ. And yet at the same time, we are given a burden, a well-fitting burden and a well-fitting yoke to pursue Christ and to serve Christ. We rest and we labor. And some seasons are intense in their labor. Some of you, I'm sure, right now are probably facing that kind of season in your life, whether it's because of broken relationships or physical struggles or a combination of those things, struggles against sin. There are times that it almost seems like, when will this end? There are times of intense struggle where we're called to be faithful and we're called to exert in the power of Christ. And then there are times that the Lord calls us away and says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Jesus knows our situation. He's the one that ordains the intensity of times of affliction and trial and pressure. And he's the one that extends the invitation to rest, and he makes provision for our rest. Verse 32, it says, They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. It was very simple. They got into a boat and they headed to the desert by themselves. Note the simplicity of that. And you know, there are times, I, I say this probably more jokingly, but I'm, I'm half serious sometimes in our family that, you know, when, when sickness comes, it's God's way of saying rest. We, we live in a time and society that pushes and pushes and pushes. We live in a time where we anticipate that the latest drug will restore us to perfect health or the latest procedure. Now, sometimes we just need to rest. 
And the Lord makes provision. He makes providential provision for that. As the disciples come back from their labors, Jesus doesn't correct or train them. They need further instruction. But the first thing he does is invite them to rest. One other thing to notice about Jesus as he's caring for his tired disciples. He's resting with Jesus. Sometimes we can look at seasons of rest and recreation as apart from Jesus, as time off to do my own thing. But true rest and true rejuvenation is with Jesus. It's in fellowship with Christ. And those times of rest, the times when we have a cessation perhaps of some of the normal pressures of life or when a season of a special intensity has, has been withdrawn and we have an opportunity to renew our souls, it's not a renewal of recreation that we need. It has its place. It's healthy to a degree. But it's a renewal of the soul with Jesus. Vacation, in other words, vacation is not the opportunity to take a break from your Bible. Vacation is not an opportunity to take a break from Christ. He's caring for his disciples as they are with him. Following Christ is to wear a well-fitted yoke for service. You know, the reality is we will die before we get everything done that we'd like to get done. Mary sat at Jesus' feet. Martha was anxious and troubled about many things. Jesus says to his disciples, come away and rest. Jesus cares for the tired. Well, the disciples didn't get the fullness of that rest. They had a little bit of time in the boat away with Jesus as they crossed the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. But the passage goes on to tell us in verse 33, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things." Well, their rest was short-lived. The popularity of the disciples and of Christ had grown as they went out around Galilee. And so as they departed from the crowds, they were recognized. And people from all over, it says, from all the towns found out and they ran ahead of them to meet them where they anticipated the boat would land. And when they got there, they saw the crowd. Jesus saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. What we see in this section and the second point this evening is that Christ directs the lost. Christ directs the lost. Many are lost. Many are lost. Verse 33, many saw them going and recognized them. The crowds are following Christ. And in John's gospel, as we harmonize the accounts, why are they so anxious to follow Christ? Well, they they want bread without work. They want economic stability instead of eternal life. That's, That's ultimately what the crowds are after they're after some kind of of revolution for their situation they're desperate people and there are many of them and Christ takes pity on the lost look at the statement in verse 34 as he sees the crowd he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd Christ takes pity on the lost. Jesus' words indicate that as he looked at the people, 
and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, that what he saw was an unprotected people, a vulnerable people, sheep wandering alone and easily destroyed. If you think about the picture in the wilderness when, when a herd of sheep was uh, together, there was safety as they were packed in together, but a sheep that would wander off on its own, sheep that had no shepherd to bring them together, were vulnerable to the wild animals. They were vulnerable to destruction. They had no leader. They were in danger. And that's the picture that's communicated by Mark's description, by what Jesus is seeing. This isn't just like, all oh, these poor little sheep. This is, these sheep are in danger. There's urgency here. They have no one to lead them. They have no shepherd. It brings to mind what God says of the disobedient shepherds in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verses 5 and 6. As he addresses the disobedient shepherds, he says this about the sheep, about his people. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to seek after them. To be in the condition that Jesus is seeing these people is to be the prey, P-R-E-Y, the prey of the devil. They're lost. They're vulnerable. They're in danger. They have no leader. And that point, of course, is emphasized for us even in the account that precedes this one with Herod. Herod is supposed to be the ruler of Galilee, but what is he? He is a self-gratifying, lecherous old man. He has no concern for the sheep. The spiritual leaders of the day, they have no concern for the sheep. All they are interested in is strengthening their political connections and their own position. And so when Jesus sees these multitudes, the Son of God, the one who came to save people from their sin, he takes pity on them. He has compassion because they are in danger. They're in eternal peril. And so what does Jesus do? And this is a critical point in the text, even to understanding the right application of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus doesn't start with feeding the people bread. Look again at the text, verse 34, at the end of the verse, he began to teach them many things. He taught them. He's directing the lost. Many are lost. Jesus takes pity on the lost and he gives spiritual direction. He began to teach them many things and What do we know that Jesus is teaching the people? Well, he's teaching them how to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He's teaching them that they need to repent of their sins and they must turn to him, the Messiah. There's one way into the kingdom of God. There's one way into the only kingdom that matters. There's one way to eternal life, Christ alone. And Jesus is teaching them this as they come as sheep without a shepherd. These are people who are lost, who are seeking salvation through their good works. They've been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees that there are a set of rules that they must obey to to gain favor with God. And they're lost. They're in danger, like 
sheep without a shepherd. People are lost as well, not only when they're attempting to gain favor with God through good works by obeying a set of rules, but also by attempting to simply add Christ to their lives. You know, that often takes place where people hear of Christ and they think, well, that sounds like a good option. I'll try Christ too. Well, there's no two. It's Christ or nothing. It's all Christ. People constantly need taught the glories of Christ and the glories of salvation. Jesus is, is giving us an example here in the way that he is handling the people that are in danger, the people that are lost. What does he do? He teaches them. He proclaims the kingdom of God. He calls them to repent. He calls them to believe the gospel. In Matthew 28 and verses 19 and 20, when Jesus gives his commission to his disciples, his great commission, he tells them, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. What is it that people who are lost need? What is it that, that people who are like sheep without a shepherd need? They need to be told, follow Christ. They need to be commanded, repent of your sins, turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and they need to learn what a life committed to Christ, a life transformed by Christ looks like. That's what lost people need. And so to revert back to one of the themes that we touched on in the, in the fall, in one of our leadership meetings, we, we constantly clarify the gospel. We constantly exalt Christ. We constantly remind ourselves of the great doctrines of salvation, of justification and, and reconciliation and redemption that are found in Jesus Christ because that is what lost sheep in danger need to hear over and over and over again. And as we clarify the gospel and, and against all of the attacks of false teaching, energized by the devil and his minions, we also seek to construct Christ-like thinking and affections. Order your life in a way that honors Christ. Stop seeking the things below and set your mind on things above. Here's an example of that. Here's an example of spiritual direction, an application, if you will, of the teaching of Jesus. In Colossians, Paul focuses on the preeminence of Christ. And as he comes to the points of application in Colossians 3, he says, set your minds on things above. Put to death what is earthly in you, Put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. What is Paul doing? He's reminding these Colossians, you've turned to Christ. Set your mind on things above. What does it look like to set your mind on things above? Well, it means that you're putting to death what is earthly in you, and he gives a list of, what that, of some of those things. But you're not only putting to death what is earthly in you, but you're putting on, you're putting on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, characteristics that reflect the person of Christ. 
And that all comes together at the end of that passage where he says, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so again, we're thinking about an example of direction from Christ to the lost. We're thinking of an example about helping a sheep that is vulnerable and that is in danger and, and one way that people are in danger is, is that people do not forgive other people. Why? Because they are not forgiven oftentimes. Forgiven people forgive. And this is something that in talking with folks and, and counseling and uh, throughout the years that is, is almost a, a, a predictable theme, forgiveness. Often people come broken with relationship problems, but we have to be reminded that the problem is not only with the people that God has placed in our lives. That's often where we want the problem to be with, isn't it? No, the problem often is a refusal on our part to forgive. Which means either we're not forgiven or we're minimizing the cross of Christ and the forgiveness that we've received from Him. Say, well, how do you know that that's the kind of thing Jesus was teaching about? Well, in Matthew 18, we have a really long example of Jesus teaching about forgiveness where he tells about a servant who owed an unpayable debt that was forgiven, and then he turned around and would not forgive what amounted to pocket change from someone who had sinned against him or owed him a debt. To not forgive is to be lost without a shepherd, because forgiven people forgive. To not forgive is to be vulnerable to bitterness, to resentment, to malice and hatred, and to become prey of the roaring lion who seeks to devour. Jesus, in compassion, he directs the lost, and ultimately, ultimately, he would give his life so that we could be forgiven so that those who put their faith in Christ would know the full forgiveness that comes from Christ, and we could then turn and extend the same kind of forgiveness to others. Jesus directs the loss. And his directions are ultimately the only directions that matter. There's no other way into the kingdom of God. There's no other way into the safety of the fold of God. There are not many ways to God. Salvation is in Christ alone, and Christ directs the lost. Well, we took one small example of Christ's teaching, a theme of forgiveness, And so Jesus here is teaching many things. And what happens as Jesus is teaching many things to many people on this hillside in the wilderness? Well, verse 35 tells us, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. The hour's late. The people are tired and hungry. The disciples are starting to get worried. What are we going to do with all these people? There's no food, and there's, it's not, when they say there's no food, they don't mean there's no restaurants around that we like. We're in a desolate place. There's nothing. And so Jesus says, verse 37, you give them something to eat. What? They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 
And just so we have a, an idea of what they're saying there, they're, they're saying that anywhere from eight months to a year's wages would not be sufficient to buy the most simple kind of food for the people there. There are that many people. It's beyond what they had. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. The third point this evening is that Christ provides for the needy. The need is emphasized in this passage. They're in a desolate place. It's late, and there's insufficient funds. 200 denarii wouldn't feed uh, these people, and it's not as though the disciples even had that much. There's insufficient provision. There were five loaves and two fish. There were too many people and too little provisions. And the passage just emphasizes that over and over with the place and the provisions or lack of provisions and the multitude. The need is emphasized and the natural ability is eliminated. We're already told that the disciples are exhausted. They need to come away and rest They've been giving of themselves, and and not only that, when Jesus sent them out, what did he tell them? He told them, don't take extra provisions. So they have nothing. They don't have provisions. They don't have the financial resources. They find only a meager and minuscule supply of bread and fish, five very small cakes and two fish. Every potential source that they have has been exhausted. There's nothing. There's nothing. Until we see Christ's power. The need is emphasized. The natural ability is eliminated. And Christ's power is evident. Christ creates bread. How much do you have? Five? Five loaves and two fish. Verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them the disciples to set before the people. No words. I mean, how can, how can you... Dis- this is all the Scripture says. He just broke it and gave it. Out of five loaves and two fish, more and more and more and more and more... I mean, just to give a full basket to each of the 12 disciples would have been amazing. But the 12 disciples then went and walked among those who were seated in 50s and 100s, totaling 5,000 men. And and people say that it could have been up to 20,000 total people when the women and the children were included in that number from five loaves and two fish. Jesus creates the bread. He's providing for the needy. And this is not simply an act of social provision for hungry people, although it is for hungry people, people who were often living from hand to mouth. This ultimately is pointing to Christ, the bread of life, and showing his power to supply the multitudes with what they need. Christ, as he breaks the bread, he reverses the consequences given to Adam in this moment. Do you remember what what part of the consequences of the fall were in Genesis chapter 3? How would bread come? By the sweat of your face. Well, here Jesus is creating bread. For the multitudes, and they're sitting and receiving it. 
It's a picture of what is to come. It's a picture of the power of Christ to overcome the effects of the fall and even making this miraculous provision of bread that people are not having to work for. They're being given bread. It's a backward look, but it's also a forward look. Christ anticipates the breaking of his body. When Jesus instructed the returning crowd in John chapter 6, after this miracle, in John chapter 6, the people came back to Jesus the next day, and Jesus instructed the, the returning crowd about their most critical need. This is what he said, and this is why we know that this miracle is pointing to something greater than just the provision of food for hungry people. Because when they came back, he said this, I am the bread of life. That's the point. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And later in this gospel, in Mark 14 and verse 22, Mark echoes the actions of Christ in the desolate place as he's having a dinner with his disciples, the Last Supper. And in verse 41, here we're told, Jesus took the five loaves and two fish and looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples. In Mark 14, 22, we're told, as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. It's an anticipation of Christ's provision of himself as the bread of life. Herod hosted a large banquet that generated strife leading to death. Here on this hillside with his disciples, Jesus hosted a large feast of staples, bread and fish that left all satisfied. Look again at verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. The emphasis, they didn't just have a few crumbs and enough to get their blood sugar up till they could go home. No, they ate until they were satisfied. And not only that, verse 43, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. Proverbs 17.1, thinking again about the contrast between Herod and Christ. Proverbs 17.1 says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. The best banquets of the world will leave you with nothing but regret. That's what the world has to offer. Lots of rich-looking things that cost and bring you into poverty and leave you with nothing. The simple feast of Christ is life eternal. Now, many who ate that day, many who ate that bread failed to obtain the ultimate grace offered by the host, offered by Jesus Christ, of himself as the bread of life. Yet nonetheless, the testimony was established that this is the Christ. This is the Son of God. And in the same way that he creates physical food to feed the multitude out of nothing, he is the one who offers himself to fill the soul and to give eternal life. Again, John 6, verse 32 Jesus to the crowd the next day, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus Christ. Christ, the gracious host, satisfies. Christ cares for the tired. Christ directs the lost. And Christ provides for the needy. 
Why would we want to go to anyone else? Why would we want to serve anyone else? Why would we want to expend ourselves for the scraps of this world that are nothing more than what the prodigal son lived off in the pig pen when Christ, our gracious host, gives himself. He is the bread of life. He is our salvation. And he cares for us. He cares for us well. And ultimately, even though in this life we are given seasons of rest in the midst of often difficult and stressful times, ultimately, we anticipate our eternal rest. When we're in the presence of Christ, when we're seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb, all that we have now in the abundance of our spiritual provisions that we enjoy, that cause us to swell in gratitude to Christ, it's only a down payment. It's only a fraction of the joys that are going to come when we're called home and when forever and forever we're in the presence of Christ, our gracious host. Father, we thank you tonight for our Savior. Thank you for sending Christ to save his people from their sins. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming. We thank you for your perfect life on this earth, for providing salvation, for providing righteousness and redemption for all who would trust in you. And how we look forward to the day when we will stand with you, before you, when we will be in your presence in the new heaven and the new earth and be filled and satisfied completely and entirely, redeemed from this body of the flesh and glorified with you. Thank you for the promises of your word that are fulfilled in Christ. Thank you for the power of Christ that saves and that will transform us and that by grace we will be with you forever. We praise you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.